My name is Aaron Prince Staley, and you're listening to the Podcast Preview, where I tell you about a podcast that you're going to love. Today, I'm going to tell you about Song Exploder, one of my favorite podcasts, where the host, Rishikesh Herway, interviews a musician about a song they've written. He intersperses their interview responses with stems from the song itself, and then plays the song for you. It gives you a perspective on the song that you could never otherwise have. You know to listen for a subtle sound that's deep in the song, or maybe you'll know why a particular lyric has more meaning than you thought before. Or maybe it'll just give you enough perspective on a song in a genre that you don't usually listen to that you can actually enjoy it. Rishikesh designs each episode about the artist rather than himself. The only times you'll hear from him are at the beginning and end of the show. In fact, when he originally conceived of the show, he didn't plan on speaking at all. It took a suggestion from influential podcaster Jesse Thorne to change that. In an episode of Song Exploder, the artist's song becomes a soundtrack to the artist talking about the song. It's a really cool positive feedback loop. You can hear why the song sounds like it does in the artist's words, and you can hear what the sounds the artists are talking about as they talk about them. Song Exploder shows you what it's like to be a songwriter. In this clip, Meryl Garbus, who makes music as Tune Yards, talks about how she wrote her song, Water Fountain. You're listening to Song Exploder. My name is Rishi K. Shearway. In this episode, Meryl Garbus of Tune Yards breaks down the song Water Fountain. My name is Meryl Garbus, and I make music under the name Tune Yards. Nate Brenner is a co-writer on most of the songs now that Tune Yards creates. It was January of 2013, and I was like, okay, it's the new year, and now I'm going to start to make a new album. And so I kind of forced myself into this routine where I'd go into my little studio, which was a shipping container that had been made into a little rehearsal studio. So I was there in this like super hot metal box. The story of this song is basically that I almost threw it away because I thought it was dumb. It just sounded like really simple. I mean, think about me spending hours trying to work out laying my claps over one another and then coming up with the words like no wood in the woodstock. No wood in the woodstock. What the hell does that mean? And I was like, this is so annoying. And I'm annoying and everything sucks. And Nate had a hot box across from mine and he would walk over every afternoon. (laughs) It would be like a sanity check. And I'd be like, this sucks. And he'd be like, no, no, it's cool. And he came in and he played the first bass line that comes in. And I thought rhythmically his bass line was awesome, but I thought, no, it sounds too right. Like if you play in that kind of major key, then it's going to sound too right and it needs to sound a little bit more wrong. We kind of fought about it a little bit in our peaceful way. And then he came up with if he's playing in minor. And all of a sudden, the color of the song completely changes. And that was really important to me, that the things that the song was talking about to me were really heavy. And so it didn't make sense to just keep the whole song in major. It was like, this is disturbing. That's kind of where he was like, well, how about this? And I was like, how about that? And then we we're like, okay, both. <laughs> I saved up all my pennies and I gave them to this special guy. When he had enough of them, he bought himself a cherry pie. He gave me a dollar, a blood-soaked dollar. I cannot get the spot out, but it's okay. It still works in the store. It's still this pretty simple major melody, but then you just make the bass line minor And all of a sudden, it's like the stomach-churning part of the song, where all of a sudden you know that something's going to go down. 
I think it's really interesting how much uncertainty Meryl Garbus had while she wrote that song. She wasn't even sure if she was going to keep it because she just didn't think it sounded good. But it's such a confident sounding song when it comes out. That stomach churning thing that she says with the with the bass and the and the major uh, vocal, that's something that I never really noticed outright in the song. But now that she pointed it out, it has a lot more impact when I listen to the song. The show's imp episodes, the Song Exploders episodes, vary in mood, uh, like the songs they're about. Some of them are beautiful, moving, and sad. Some of them are cheerful. Like this episode about the theme song to Bob's Burgers, which is a television show. It's a cartoon about a restaurant called Bob's Burgers and the guy who owns it, Bob, and his family. This episode has an interview with Lauren Bouchard, who uh, created the show and the music for the show. uh, And it also has the star of the show, uh, John Benjamin. My name's John Benjamin. I play Bob on Bob's Burgers. There's something really sweet and fun about that family. This family stays afloat by having fun with each other. From working with Lauren as much as I have, there's always like a premium on optimism, I think. I'm more darker than I am optimistic. I think Lauren brings the light side to it. He bought me a ukulele, and I remember a while ago, and, you know, he sort of really wanted me to learn. You know, one thing that I only found recently was the guitarette. It's this wonderful instrument. It's really weird. I got this off eBay. Were you looking for it? No. So I have a very active relationship with eBay. The potential and the possibility is always very exciting. It's actually very hard to stumble across new instruments that you're going to fall in love with and that are worthwhile, but the possibility keeps me coming back for more. So I'll Google and or just sort of search, yeah, digging for treasure kind of uh, attitude, and I try not to spend too much. I try to have this sort of $250 limit, and I feel like that's a good experiment that's worthwhile, and if I use it on the show, I feel that I've gotten my money's worth and then some, and if I don't, I feel like I, I haven't taken from my children's college fund in order to fund this addiction. And it does bear fruit. Sometimes... You get lucky. For me, that's this nice childish aspect to the theme. And it goes nicely. This is an actual children's xylophone playing a similar harmony that um, I think helps give it a childhood glow. So together you get this. My three-year-old destroyed this thing not long after I recorded this because I left it out. So this is the last song of this little kid's xylophone. And I still have it in a bag, you know, all the pieces and all the little nails. They didn't even use screws, you know, this cheap thing. And yeah, it's, it's just in a bag waiting to be buried. If you tease apart the theme, you can find elements of the show, that the ukulele has this sort of happy, bright sound, but that there's something a little more melancholy about the bells and the guitar. The 
Star came late in the game, it's a little more shaded. It's not straight up happy. That tremolo sound always has a kind of a nice moody effect. A little sadder or bittersweet or something. And I wanted that very much to be in there as well. So you have this happy, happy ukulele, but then there's more. When you watch Bob's Burgers, music is a really important part of the show. Gene, who is one of the characters on the show played by Eugene Merman, he's the son of Bob, uh, the titular character from the show. The, the, the Gene character dreams of writing commercial jingles, and he's always playing music on a little keyboard he carries around. The music brings a lot of fun to the show. It's really nicely woven in. Unlike a traditional musical, the characters on the show acknowledge that they're actually singing. It seems like they're just like a fun family who likes to sing together, and it's a lot of fun to watch. There's some musical details that you would never notice in a song, but they play a part in making the finished song sound like it does. In this clip, The National talk about one of the finishing touches on their song, Sea of Love. I promised my wife that I would put harmonica on at least one song. (laughs) She obsessively listens to the demos that I write because we listen to them sometimes after I write them just like in the car in the house or they're just on or she hears me making them and so sometimes so like she'll have creative ideas and she's not a, she's a nurse so it's not like she's coming from a musical standpoint either but I kind of thought that was interesting because I think it was the first time that she had suggested something and so I kind of thought it would be worth a try it actually just plays like this supportive role to announce the chorus and it kind of fit but weirdly Matt didn't know it was there until like <laughs> much later when the album was done because he, he why don't you explain Matt your, your ears were a little bit destroyed when this was being recorded and mixed and put together I had to fly home to Cincinnati because my grandmother died and I had a terrible cold in the air the plane my eardrum uh, ruptured and so I got back to the studio without being able to hear anything on one side of my head. And I think you guys panned it on, over to that side on purpose so that I'd miss it. We'd try to trick each other. And so I think you guys were worried that, that if I knew there was a harmonica, I would look for it and try to get it out of there for some reason. Um, and you might be right. I don't know. I, I don't have anything specifically personal against a harmonica, but, but that is something I would do. You know, for no, no good reason, just take offense at, at a harmonica. I'm not a musician, so it's really educational for me to hear why musicians make the choices that they do and, you know, how generic and devoid of of really any uh, thought some of them are, which isn't a bad thing, right? They, They come up with something and they say, this sounds like it might be cool. Or, you know, somebody's wife says, oh, why don't you do that? And they put it in and it sounds awesome. Those are details that I would never know, and they're parts of the song that I would never notice. I think that harmonica part sounds awesome, but I never would have known that it was in the song, and I probably wouldn't have known it was a harmonica. Song Exploder has conversations with world-class musical artists, like who you've heard already. In this next clip, Bjork talks about the feelings she wanted to evoke in her song Stone Milker, and the lengths that she went to to make sure that the sound in the song was exactly what she had in mind when she was thinking about it. So I would sit down at a keyboard and just work out the chords. And then when I'm ready with the chord structure, because I knew it would be for strings, I would 
take it to violins, violas, cellos, because I kind of wanted a lot of it to be in the strings. We actually saved it till last, and I did several days of recording the strings. I had 30 players, and then I would do two sets of arrangements, so basically there are, in theory, 60, because it needed that sort of panoramic feeling to have that sort of smooth, cream-like perfection. For me, it was very important with Stonemilker that the strings were kind of cyclical, this chord cycle that kind of gives you this feeling it can go on and on in circles and gives you this feeling of equilibrium, like the person who's singing the song is showing some sort of harmony to someone as an example. I layered several recordings of the strings to be like a tower of equilibrium <laughs> that you are standing in, like a monument of equilibrium. And you're standing in the middle of it and you're small and it's huge and it just goes circle and circle and you feel very safe and secure. And that's sort of the clarity that uh, I would want to offer, try to offer emotionally in the song. And the strings are kind of the tool I have to try to make this kind of cradle. So I spent a lot of time going through all the takes and all the mics and try to make this kind of tight woven net that each string instrument was equally important because they have all these kind of sub-melodies that they would you could hear them all, but it would still not be a solo, that it was like this balance of this kind of woven string tower <laughs> that was keeping you safe. You can hear how much of a master of music Bjork is. In her head, she has a picture of the sound she wants to hear and that she wants you to hear. And she has an emotion that she wants to convey with the song. And she knows that if she gets 30 strings players to play two different parts and layer them together in just such a way with just the right microphones, she can make you feel a certain way. I think that's such a cool vision and such a cool way to convey her vision. And Song Exploder is the only way that you would ever get to hear Bjork explain exactly why she does what she does in her music and why she makes the choices that she makes. It's not every day that you get to hear from an expert like Bjork at something about how they do it. In this next clip, you get to also. You get to hear Bono from U2 talking about how he wrote the lines or the lyrics uh, to his song Cedarwood Road off of their latest album. This is Bono here. I lived on a really nice street, quite a sweet place. But behind the back garden, they began to build the Seven Towers. The Seven Towers were an experiment for Ireland in the 70s, and they became the kind of projects of North County Dublin. As a kid of seven or eight or nine, I would go out walking in the fields, but by the time I was 13, 14, 15, things got a little different. Kids from the inner city had been forcibly relocated to these seven towers. 
communities have been broken up and people who didn't know each other forced to live together. So they were very unhappy. They were angry, they were annoyed. This were the people that we would meet as young teenagers. And it was very aggressive. And so a lot of my early memories of teenage years were of violence and the sheer fear of leaving the house, going to catch the bus. I was running down the road, the fear was all I knew. I was looking for a soul that's real, then I ran into you. My best friend since I was three years old is known to the world as Googie. He came from a family in five Cedarwood Road, and they were very religious. The father was like some figure from the Old Testament, and he was tough on those kids. And so, as well as the violence that I was experiencing from the outside and exterior world of the tough neighborhoods that grew up around Cedarwood Road, we were responding to the violence that was interior, the domestic violence. And so... When I met Googie, I kind of knew instinctively that he would be my comrade. And you make these decisions when you're a kid without even understanding the gravity of them. You know, I've spent the rest of my life with him. He's still my best friend, even to this day. And friendship once it's one, it's one, it's one. In 2016, it's hard to picture sort of goofy rock star Bono as a scrappy kid living in a neighborhood, going through upheaval with his best friend, Googie. But you can hear that on Song Exploder. And it makes that song so much more powerful to hear Bono talking about why he wrote the lines the way he did. And, uh, you know, elsewhere in that episode, you hear The Edge talk about exactly how he came up with the guitar riffs in that song. It's It gives it so much more power to hear the whole reasons why, instead of having it be... You know, just another pretty good U2 song. My favorite songs are the ones that tell stories. Um, And my favorite episodes of Song Exploder are the ones about story songs. This next one is The Commander Thinks Aloud by The Long Winters, which tells the story of the Space Shuttle Columbia disaster. My name is Rishikesh Hirway. You're listening to Song Exploder. My fellow Americans, this day has brought terrible news and great sadness to our country. At 9 o'clock this morning, Mission Control in Houston lost contact with our space shuttle Columbia. A short time later, debris was seen falling from the skies above Texas. The Columbia is lost. There are no survivors. That was President George W. Bush addressing the nation on February 1st, 2003. A couple years later, John Roderick, singer and songwriter of The Long Winters, recorded a song about the Space Shuttle Columbia on that day as it broke apart while re-entering the Earth's atmosphere. It's called The Commander Thinks Aloud. This episode was made from an interview I did with John Roderick in front of a live audience in Seattle about how and why he made this song. Put your jackets on I am John Roderick. I had my pilot's license when I was 17. My dad was a small plane pilot. And that was the way my dad, that was one of the ways that we bonded, was in a small plane, you know, trying to make it over a mountain range. 
So I had a lot of experience in planes. I always love to fly, and when the nose comes off the ground, I always feel a charge. I didn't want to be a person that was anxious about flying. Well, at that point in 2005, I guess, we were still pretty close to 9-11, and the space shuttle disaster followed pretty close on the heels of that. But also, there were all those smaller disaster crashes. The Alaska Airlines crash that happened off the coast of California where they lost their vertical stabilizer, the jack screw one. The pilots were aware there was a problem. Everyone was aware there was a problem. It just flew around and then flipped upside down and plummeted into the ocean. And then there was the one off of Long Island where maybe the gas tank exploded. And then there was that Learjet that lost compression and everybody in it gone until it ran out of gas. And all of these disasters stuck with me, particularly the ones where there was a sense that the people on board knew that they were lost, but they were still alive. The unfolding, dawning realization, like, you know, we're not getting out of this. And what's your reaction in that situation? Do you, do you scream? You probably don't. Probably everybody is really calm in that situation. And, and so I pictured the astronauts on re-entry. They knew there was something wrong with their ship. They were worried about it, but everybody had convinced them it was going to be fine. And they're performing their duties. They are having the peak experience of their lives and maybe one of the peak human experiences. Like, we are coming back to Earth, having just, like, looked down at Earth and had that feeling how beautiful that kind of dumb little stuff is. The beauty of the mundane, right? Like, boys and girls in cars and dogs and birds on lawns, like, seeing it maybe like no one else would ever see it. Boys and girls in cars. Dogs and birds on lawns. From here I can touch the sun. I love all of the Song Exploder episodes that you heard pieces of on this episode. The episode with Lauren Bouchard about the theme song to Bob's Burgers includes a part of the theme song that you can't hear anywhere else. And that's a a pretty common thing on Song Exploder. You're getting to hear stuff you'll never hear anywhere else. I especially love the last episode you heard about the Commander Thinks Aloud by the Long Winters with the interview with John Roderick. I listen to that episode of this podcast every couple of weeks. I like to put it on in my car or in my headphones and listen to it straight through uninterrupted. And I know you'll enjoy it too. To keep up with Song Exploder, you can subscribe to the podcast, follow at Song Exploder on Twitter, or go to songexploder.net. Next week on the podcast preview, you'll hear my interview with Seattle food writers Molly Weisenberg and Matthew Amster Burton, hosts of Spilled Milk, a comedy podcast about food. I feel like the thing that nobody wants is a sneak attack of any kind. And a sneak attack of raisins <laughs> is, is possibly... You're right. The, that is something nobody wants. <laughs> the worst kind of sneak attack. So when you know a raisin is coming, it's like, oh, this is awesome. So you're saying... <laughs>
if I if I'm understanding this correctly, like like if you bite into what you think is like an oatmeal chocolate chip cookie and it's actually an oatmeal raisin cookie, mm-hmm. that's worse than like a roadside bomb. I'm not going to answer that All question. Right? Thank you for listening to the podcast preview. To keep up with the show, you can subscribe to the podcast feed by searching the podcast preview in your favorite podcast app. Want to talk about podcasts? Is there a show you think I should recommend? You can email me at thepodcastpreview at gmail.com or send me a message on Facebook or Twitter at Podcast Preview. I'm Aaron Prince-Staley. I'll talk to you next week.